Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to see who you are, that you would destroy any conceptions that we may have built up, any idols or false images of you that we've constructed in our minds. We pray that those would be dashed and that we would see you clearly this morning. We pray most of all that we will see that we would see the hope that we have in how you have acted in Christ Jesus and that we would place our trust and faith in him and that we would find refuge in him this morning. Through Christ's name we pray. Amen. I have to admit that preaching through the Psalms sort of sequentially one after another is challenging. Um, I've been encouraged though uh, by John Calvin who in the 1500s was run out of Geneva for three years and after coming back from his three-year exile he returned to the pulpit and without saying a word about what had happened about the fact that he had been run out of Geneva for the last three years he simply picked up where he had left off in the Psalms three years prior and began preaching again I'm trying to follow that pattern and these Psalms are sometimes difficult I believe I've said it before, but it's worth repeating. One of the major advantages of preaching consistently through Scripture, of preaching text after text, of continuing to plow through books and through sections of the Bible, is that we are faced to heed the full counsel of God's Word. In other words, we can't hide in our favorite passages. We can't simply talk about topics that we're comfortable with. But we must wrestle with the difficult passages. And this psalm, Psalm 5, is one of those difficult passages. One of the reasons it is difficult is because we find in it not the picture of a cuddly, warm God, but we find in it the picture of a truly fierce God. At the same time, though, we find that this fierce God is also endlessly faithful and endlessly loving. The love of God is an easy subject to talk about, but again, we often find ourselves shying away from the wrath and the justice and the righteousness of God. And yet this psalm contains both. Sometime last year, I don't remember when this was, but it serves as a fitting illustration Leland was working on question 18 in the New City Catechism. Let me show you the question with the children's answer. Will God allow our disobedience and idolatry to go unpunished? The answer, no, God is righteously angry with our sins and will punish them both in this life and in the life to come. Now teaching that to a four-year-old was challenging. A part of me recoiled. I didn't like the idea of teaching it. But notice that's an emotional response from me. I don't like this idea of a God who would somehow be just or righteous. I don't like the idea of a God who would be angry with sin. And so that's part of the reason. But I think there's a deeper reluctance in my heart in even teaching this to my child. And the reason I find it so hard to teach my child this language is it because, because it forces me to accept that it is true. It forces me to believe these words. After all, if I'm going to indoctrinate my son with this language, I had better believe it myself. 
But there's no escaping this language. There's no escaping this conclusion if we are going to take seriously what the Bible says about God. And it's only when we understand that really bad news that God is righteously angry with our sins and will punish them. It's only when we understand the severity of God that we begin to understand and grasp the breathtaking reality of His kindness and His goodness. So let's look at the psalm together, and we'll make our way through it as normal, beginning in verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. So like so many of the psalms, David here, the psalmist, begins by petitioning the Lord. Consider my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Hear my prayers. And once more, we are instructed in the biblical way to pray. That we bring our petitions to the Lord. We come before a great king asking for his aid. And there's something worth noting here as well. That last word, groaning. I don't want to stretch this too much, but I do think there's some significance to this. The word groaning is the noun form of what we saw in Psalm 1. Remember in Psalm 1, we read in verse 2, Blessed is the man who meditates on the instruction of the Lord day and night. That word meditates is the key word here. That's the verbal form for this word groaning. So the, the verb could be translated instead of meditate, groan or mumble, something like that. It's also in Psalm chapter 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot? That's the same word. Why do they meditate in vain? And I think what's going on here is this consistent picture through these opening psalms of seeing someone or contrasting the person who would humble themselves before God with those who would continue in resistance and rebellion. I think this is reinforcing that contrast. That there is the way of humility before the Lord and there is a way of resistance and rebellion. And as we're faced with the severity of God in this passage, we're urged to a posture of humility. We're urged to recognize that this is God Almighty we're speaking about. We're not talking about our friend or a family member. We're talking about the one true God who brings all things into existence through the spoken word. We're talking about the God who sits so far outside of time that the end is known to Him from the very beginning. Verse 2. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. Notice that posture of humility. My King and my God. For to you do I pray. I don't make petitions elsewhere. I don't go anywhere else. But instead I recognize that you alone are the one worth praying to. You alone are the one worth trusting. Then verse 3. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Notice we have two times repeated this idea of being in the morning because it's a priority for David. It's a priority that he brings his petition to the Lord first thing in the day. It starts his day. In the morning I come to you. And as we're faced with this picture of God, we have to challenge our common perceptions and our own failure to prioritize and worship God. 
It's easy for us to wake up and hit the day running and doing all sorts of other things. It's easy for us to seek out other gods or false images of God. And yet here David says, Lord, in the morning, the very first thing I do is I come to you, my God and my King, and I recognize who you are. I don't come with my conceptions. In fact, a really important message comes from Jeremiah chapter 2 where the Lord says, My people have committed two evils. They have, they have rejected me, the fountain of living waters. That's the first one. They've rejected me. But the second evil is this. They have, he says, hewed out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And what he means is, I'm the fountain of living water, but they've gone and they've made these corrupt gods in my place. And they can't hold any water whatsoever, let alone the living water. You see, the issue here is one of our own rejecting, our own deprioritization of who God is. And we can learn from David to petition the Lord to prioritize who God is, to come with this posture of humility. And we'll notice here that David's prayer is grounded in the character of God. It's not just some abstract prayer to a being that's somewhere out there in the universe, but it is a prayer that is grounded in who God is and who He knows God to be based on Scripture. You'll see that in verse 4. Notice the connecting word, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. So take all those first three verses. Why am I petitioning this God? For this is who you are. Because you do not delight in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. So David is petitioning the Lord about his enemies. But there's application for virtually any situation in our world. Because our world is under the curse of sin. We can petition the Lord on any number of items due to that curse. Might not be enemies in the specific sense or in the particular sense. But we may petition the Lord on the basis of His character in the same way. Now, look closely. What does this say about His character? He does not delight in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with Him. Put another way, he is so holy that evil can't stand in his presence. It cannot reside with him. As um, the prophet puts it, Habakkuk, he, he says that uh, God is too pure to behold evil or unrighteousness. He does not delight in wickedness. So David's prayer is grounded in who God is. Who he knows God to be. His petition is based on who he knows God to be. And let's keep going. We'll learn more of God's character. Verse 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Well, this verse might make us somewhat uncomfortable. It's one of those you tend to skip. And this is again that benefit of preaching sequentially through Scripture of teaching sequentially through Scripture, of reading through Scripture and not just picking out devotional thoughts. The importance of this is that as we read, we are confronted with the full counsel of who God is. And here we find this incredibly difficult verse that says the Lord hates all who do evil. 
This is one of the few places where it's not the deeds that are pictured, but actually those who are conducting the deeds that are under God's hatred. Now, this would be one of the reasons we might skip it, but there are really three important things to note. First, this hatred speaks to the perfect and unblemished character of the Lord. How could he not hate that which is opposed to him? How could he tolerate that which is contrary to his perfection? So we have this clear statement on the severity of God. And it may trouble us, but it is part of God's governance of the world. If God is not just, then wrong will never be righted. Justice and grace are not somehow opposed, by the way. It is through justice that redemption is possible. God must be just, He must be holy, He must be righteous if we ever hope for redemption. And as I'll make it a point in just a moment, we all desire redemption. We all want the world to be right. The second thing we can say about this is that the Lord's moral character, including His justice and His wrath, and yes, even if we use the biblical language here, His hatred remains distinct from human character. Because unlike human character, God's character is perfect and holy and untainted by sin. When we speak of God's wrath or His hatred, we're not talking about something haphazard or even reactionary. God's character is perfectly united. It's not all over the place. In fact, the word theologians use for this is they talk about God's simplicity. And what they mean is not that God is a simple thing to understand, but that God is perfectly united and you can't split through Him and start to pull out different pieces. He's not like us. He's not prone to all the fragmentation that we have in our heads and hearts. He is always consistent. He's always united in His character. So, God isn't susceptible to an outburst of anger. He's not susceptible to being reactionary. His anger is an outflow of His perfect and undivided character. It is an outflow of His goodness. It is an outflow of His desire for justice and righteousness. All of the things that we value. Furthermore, we might also say this. The eternal God sits outside of time. So, He doesn't respond to time or experience time or react to events in a linear fashion like you and I do. Like we don't know what's going to happen this afternoon. God does. And God doesn't experience time as it unfolds like you and I do. God experiences time beginning to end. It's a huge picture of God, right? Finally, third point, we desire justice. We desire justice. And if we desire justice, then it tells us also something about God. Even though our moral character is sinful, we desire the righting of wrongs and the redemption we long for requires justice. I doubt there's any single one of us in this room that would look around the atrocities and the world and in history and say that, well, we really just want everything to be off the hook and, and we don't want justice to ever come about. I doubt there's any one of us who would ever look at something like the Holocaust, for example, and say, yeah, the justice isn't necessary at this point. We desire justice, and yet we're morally flawed. And so God, who is perfectly holy, desires justice. So we need verses like this, and we need verses like verse 6, which we'll continue into. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors 
the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Another equally strong verse as we just saw. Again, we've seen clearly the severity of God through His holy wrath and through His justice. But now we're going to see a transition. We're going to transition to His kindness and His mercy. But I must caution you that both the justice and the kindness of the Lord are part of His perfect character. We don't want to oppose them and act like one is different from the other or, or that, that He doesn't have both in this perfection of His character. Nevertheless, what we do see is the Lord's incredible kindness and mercy on display throughout all of Scripture. So before we go on to verse 7, let me just show you two more passages where we see His anger and His loving kindness set together. Psalm 30 verse 5 says, For His anger is but for a moment, and His favor is for a lifetime. You see this brevity or temporalness of His anger compared to His goodness that lasts forever. And here we can see how God's justice is completely good. Then there's Exodus 34, 6 and 7, which is repeated in various ways throughout Scripture. But it's that great moment where the Lord reveals Himself to Moses. And we read, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children and the children's children to the third and to the fourth generation. Notice we see both justice and mercy. But also notice this. Commentators have pointed this out. His steadfast love is said to go to the thousandth, most likely generation here. I know the translation just simply says steadfast love for thousands. But... but the best understanding seems to be that there's a contrast being set up here. His steadfast love proceeds to the thousandth generation, whereas His justice goes through the third and the fourth generation. So we see a God who is perfectly good and desires to bring redemption, and yet is holy. And the steadfast love, this same word, by the way, which runs all throughout Scripture and is so important to understanding God's character and to understanding who He is and understanding His faithfulness to His plans. This steadfast love is what we find in the next verse here in Psalm 5, verse 7. So there's a contrast, verse 7. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love. So David's not banking on his goodness. He's looking at God's character still. He's saying through your faithfulness, through your loyalty, through your steadfast love, I will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear, notice posture of humility, of you. So David enters bowing down. This is that humility we talked about. And then on to another petition in verse 8. Lead me. O Lord, in your righteousness, because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. His enemies are out to destroy him. They're out to get him, but he knows that deliverance is found in the Lord. By the way, this is consistent with how Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. When he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And one of the interesting things about that is Jesus may not be talking about abstract evil, like deliver us from generic evil. 
But a valid translation of his prayer is deliver us from the evil one. That is Satan. Deliver us from our enemy. As 1 Peter 5 reminds us, there is an enemy walking about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, out to destroy the church, out to destroy the people of God. And so David's prayer is completely consonant with that. Lead me in your righteousness because of my enemies. They're out there. Show me the right way. Make my way straight so that I don't stumble before my enemies. That's the prayer of the Christian as well as we navigate life, knowing full well that there is real evil out to destroy us. I think Katie mentioned that before she sang her uh, first song. This world remains under the sway of Satan. He's referred to as the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2. The ruler of this world. The God of this world. And the world is following after Satan's rebellion. That's the story. When we look at what's wrong with the world, it's not that people just need to wisen up. It's that there is real evil at play. And apart from God's grace through the cross, that evil enslaves all of humanity. Look at verse 9. In verse 9 we read, For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Now David is here speaking of his enemies. But Paul picks this up in Romans 3. And he quotes it in a string of verses. He takes a whole string of verses from the Old Testament, a lengthy string of Old Testament quotes in Romans 3 to make a simple point. No one is righteous before God. Paul indicts all of humanity by saying that no one seeks God. That's Romans 3, verses 10. This quotation starts in 10 and goes through around verse 19 or 20. So we'll come back to that in a minute because I want to come back to how Paul concludes that argument. But he indicts all of humanity under this heading of their throat is an open grave. They, they, they don't have the truth in their mouth. They're all stuck in this thing we call sin. This is something that I really want to impress on you. When Paul talks about sin, for example, in Romans, he doesn't do so in the sense that we tend to think about sin. We tend to think about sin as in sins, that is, the mistakes we make, the wrongs we do. But when Paul talks about sin, especially in the book of Romans, he's talking about sin with a capital S, almost like personifying it, as in there is this evil force that is compelling us and controlling us, and there is absolutely nothing we can do about it apart from God. Okay, that's how he speaks about sin. When you look at the world, and when you look at your life, and when you think about how history has gone, it's pretty easy to see that. It makes a lot of sense. It actually has some traction. The issue isn't that people just need to do a little better. The issue is that we've got a big, big problem, capital S, sin. And this is a prayer the Lord will answer, by the way, to deliver us. This prayer that David prays here in uh, verse uh, 9 to to deliver him from his enemies, or actually verse 8 rather. And he goes on, verse 10. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. 
for they have rebelled against you. So the Lord answers this prayer out of his justice. But David also instructs us how we might avoid such a fate. In other words, he instructs us how we will not be prone to stay in this situation of bearing our guilt before God, of finding the abundance of our transgressions tossing us out before God, of finding ourselves in consistent rebellion against God. Look what he concludes, verses 11 and 12. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. So that's the operative word here. Taking refuge in you. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them. That those who love your name may exult in you. Because you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Those who take refuge in the Lord will find eternal refuge. And what does it mean to take refuge in the Lord? It means to trust, as we see the whole story of Scripture here, it means to trust in Christ and Christ alone for righteousness and salvation. Only by being covered with His righteousness do we find refuge. Only by being covered in His righteousness do we have this shield of protection that David speaks about here. We have to heed the warning of John the baptizer. Flee from the coming wrath because God is severe. He is righteous. He is just. And as Charles Spurgeon noted, we flee that wrath by flying to Christ. Remember I mentioned that Paul quotes from the psalm, quoting verse 9 in Romans 3. As he develops that argument, I've said he indicts all of humanity. And what we learn is that the gospel of Jesus does not make sense without the wrath and the justice of God. After all, why would Christ die? Why would trust in Him be so critical? But in the culmination of that argument, which Julia read for us, Romans 3, 21 through 26, which I'm just going to read a selection. Paul makes this point unmistakably clear. I want to pick up in Romans 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, he's proven that by a quote of Old Testament, or a string of Old Testament quotes, including Psalm 5, verse 9. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified, that is, they're made righteous by His grace as a gift. Okay, free. It's not something we do. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's how it's free. Because of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a, and I have here an atoning sacrifice. The word in the ESV is propitiation, which is something that appeases someone's wrath. Put forward as an atoning sacrifice by His blood to be received by faith. This, this whole action, of God acting in Christ was to show God's righteousness, His holiness, His justice, because in His divine patience or forbearance, He had passed over former sins. Remember what I told you. He's not capricious. He's not haphazard. He's not reactionary. He is calculated, slow, seeing all things. His anger is not something that just lashes out in His divine patience. He has passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time. And then here it is. 
so that he might be just, that is righteous, and the justifier, the righteous maker of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you see it? God's justice, so that he might be just and holy and righteous, and so that he also might be good and merciful and kind. See, on the cross, the Lord is both just and merciful. On the cross, those two things meet. We don't find mercy by being really sorry. We don't even find mercy, by the way, which is so common to hear, by asking for forgiveness. We find mercy by looking to Christ in His perfect sacrifice. We find mercy by trusting in what He's accomplished. And nothing else. Not trusting in, well, I pray a prayer of forgiveness, but trusting in what Christ has done. That is critical. And that mercy is perfect and secure in Christ. That's how you find mercy. That's the good news. That's the gospel. In Romans 11, 22, Paul writes, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity for those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. How do you continue in His kindness? But Paul goes on. In this section, he's talking about how God brings the Gentiles into His people. How God is bringing the nations to Himself. But he notes both the severity and kindness of God. And the determining issue, Paul says there in Romans 11.20, is belief or trust or faith. Will we receive what Christ has done? Or will we continue to rely on ourselves? That's the very simple question. Will we trust in what Christ has done or will we rely on ourselves? When David says, let all who take refuge in you rejoice, he does not say, let all those who find refuge in themselves, refuge in you, meaning taking refuge in what God has done in Christ. Will we trust that Christ has completely satisfied the wrath of God? Or will we continue to believe that we don't deserve wrath? Or that we can escape it through our own sufficiency? I think the great challenge is probably today, as I mentioned in the beginning, thinking that perhaps we don't deserve the wrath at all. And we struggle with that. Our secular world is very, very, um, very focused on how we feel about ourselves and there's this therapeutic culture and this idea of a God who is just is just something we don't tend to like. But again, here's the picture we find in Scripture. And I would submit to you that if you look at the world and try to put the pieces together and make sense out of all the awful things that happen, all the brutal things that happen, you really have two options. And those options are not, well, people are basically good and they just need to kind of do better or work toward that good. Two options are everything is meaningless and this world is just utter chaos and the sooner it implodes, the better off we'll be. Or the message of Christianity, which is we have fallen deeply into sin and we are now under slavery to sin and Satan. But thanks be to God because Christ has delivered us from our enemies. One scholar famously commented, only he who knows the greatness of wrath will be mastered by the greatness of mercy. Until we face up to the severity of the Lord, we will never understand the breathtaking kindness of the gospel. 
So I have a few takeaways here for you. It may be extremely profitable for you to meditate on the fierce justice of the Lord. I know we don't do this often. We tend to focus on the kindness and love of God, and we certainly should talk about those things. But again, how productive and how profitable and how fruitful it is for us to look at ourselves and to look at a holy God and to see His justice, His righteousness, and then to see what He has done for us. Second, consider how often we rely on justifying ourselves. Consider all the ways we rely on justifying ourselves. All the ways that we try to prove that we're good or we're okay or we're righteous or, or we've done enough. And then fly to Christ. Throw all of those things down. Of course you're familiar with that famous passage that's always quoted in instances like this. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. Well, by comparison, it is. Consider how often we rely on justifying ourselves. Because the issue here is this. Anytime we try to supplement what Christ has done, anytime we think we need to contribute, we are implicitly rejecting what Christ has done. We are saying He hasn't done enough and I need to do something. And then finally this. Consider the ways that we treat God as secondary. Consider the ways that we put God down the priority list. David says, I make my prayers to you in the morning. How often does our picture of God slide down and down and down? And yet the more we read Scripture, the more we're confronted with a God who is so far beyond our comprehension, who is so far beyond anything in this creation, who who doesn't need anyone to bring Him into existence, but on, upon whom all things are dependent and would cease to exist if He chose to simply let them go. And consider all the character traits of this God, that He is holy and righteous and perfect and just. All of the things that we've said from this psalm and across Scripture. And consider how the biblical picture of God demands our devotion and our priority. Let me close us with prayer before we have our closing hymn and our benediction. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for your sacrifice. I pray that we would grasp with full clarity the extent of your atonement for us. That we can never ever make ourselves right before a holy God. And yet, in your work on the cross, you have accomplished exactly what we need. You have accomplished everything we need once for all so that we don't need to keep coming back. We don't need to, we don't need to keep making the sacrifice anew or anything like that, but we simply need to rely on You and cling to You and constantly depend upon You. And I pray that that would be our great comfort this morning. I pray that You would open our eyes to the ways that we are constructing images of 
idols that are not the true God. And I pray that you would show us where we have tried to rely on ourselves and where we have committed this great evil against the one true God. Lord, again, I pray for clarity. I pray for openness. And I pray that you would be pleased to be glorified here at Monument Heights. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.